Pranakasha live stream. Hey folks, it's Matt at Pranakasha Productions, and today we're going to be talking with Rob Jones of Rob Jones Journey. So uh, before we get started though, folks, I want to remind you, if you like these videos, be sure to express your support and actually press the like button. And if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe and also leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you, and I guarantee every comment that people leave, I, Matt from Pranakasha Productions, aka Pranakasha Matt, We'll read those comments and then respond as Pranakasha Productions, and it's actually me. So like, subscribe, leave a comment, share the video on Twitter and Facebook, all those great things. If you do that, YouTube will love us. The YouTube AI will help promote the video and help us create even more great content. So today, Rob Jones, I know Rob because... My day job is as an IT guy, and uh, we had one of our uh, quarterly IT department-wide meetings, and Rob was invited as a guest speaker and gave an amazing sharing and uh, motivational speech. And then at the end, he said, if anybody wants to contact me, here's my contact info. And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I want you on my show. <laughs> so here we are. So Rob... Uh, just, I guess, just launch in and tell us your story. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll do it uh, kind of briefly. We could probably go on for hours and hours doing the whole thing. But uh, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was a Marine. I joined the Marine Corps in 2006 and deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Terror. Uh, Iraq in 2008 and Afghanistan in 2010. And my primary role was uh, finding... IEDs basically improvised explosive devices. So, anytime we would come up to a place where we thought there might be one, I would go in first and make sure the area was safe, find us find a safe path through that area. And unfortunately, one day in uh, Afghanistan, July twenty second, two thousand ten, um, I lost the game of cat and mouse with IEDs, and the IED found me that time, and that resulted in double above knee amputations of my legs when I stepped on it. And I recovered at Walter Reed for about a year and a half, learning how to walk again and learning how to, you know, just kind of do all the different activities that I thought I might be able to use moving forward or I could, yeah, that I could use uh, running, riding my bike. I learned how to row when I was there, uh, all sorts of different things. And then finally retired in December of 2011 and kind of set out to find a new path for myself that would bring me meaning and purpose and enjoyment in life. And the first thing I tried was uh, the Paralympics rowing uh, because the Paralympics were in 2012. And so it was kind of good timing. And so I found myself a rowing partner and we trained for about nine months. Uh, That's all we really did was eat, sleep and train. And we won a bronze medal in the Paralympics in September of 2012. And I also met my wife there. Uh, who is an English rower. Um, and we started dating about a year later, uh, long distance. And, but I knew that, you know, rowing wasn't really going to bring me, it brought me enjoyment. I definitely enjoyed it, but I did, I struggled to find the greater purpose, greater meaning behind it. That kind of matched what I was doing in Afghanistan. And so I <clears throat> tried to find something else uh, that might fulfill both those requirements. 
And that's what led me to get on my bike and start riding it across the country, uh, raising money for veteran charities and just going on this uh, grand adventure. And that took me about six months. Uh, I rode from Bar Harbor, Maine to Southern California, Camp Pendleton near San Diego. And I did that during the winter time. It was in 2013 was the year of the polar vortex. I don't know if you remember that. It was the first polar vortex, I think. I, I probably wasn't uh, the first polar vortex in the history of the planet, but I guess it was like the first, first time, time we... they had coined the term, you know, yeah. I remember um, I made a big deal about it. <laughs> and now every other week it's another polar vortex or a bomb cyclone or whatever. Or uh, what's it? They also have like the, the river in the sky or something like that, you know? Yeah. There's coming up with all these, like, <laughs> you know, you know, really scary terminology for all these storms. Yeah. Um, and so I finished the bike ride in um, April of 2014. And, you know, I, I wasn't still wasn't fully satisfied with that. Uh, and I didn't really know why at the time. Um, but for lack of a better idea, I tried to make the Paralympics again in 2016, except this time in triathlon. Uh, so I spent 2015 and 20 part of 2016 training for that. And okay, here's a stupid question. Uh, exactly what? is in a triathlon right uh so a triathlon is an event in which you swim a certain distance then hop on your bike and ride a certain distance and then you run a certain distance so uh the first triathlons that and were done you were do each of those on a different day or is it like all in a row back or? to back to back so what you do is you swim so the, the first one was the iron man so it's these kind of crazy military guys down in hawaii trying to decide what the what the best sport who what what sport was the most badass so there was a swimmer a cyclist and a runner that all uh <clears throat> were having this debate so they decided to do them all back to back to back okay but back to back you mean i mean there's a little bit of, like you get time to take off your bathing suit and put on your riding your biking suit yeah, or whatever so what, you do, <laughs> so what you do is you get in the water and you swim okay. a certain distance so an iron man is like a mile and a half but my distance was 750 meters okay. so you swim that in open water and then you come out of the water and then you go into what's called transition. So you run into this area where everybody's bike is kind of stacked on all these bike racks. Okay. So you run in there and you get on your bike and you run out of transition and you go do the bike ride on the bike course. Okay. And then you ride your bike back into transition and then you put on your running shoes or do whatever you got to do to get ready for the run. Okay. Uh, and then you go out on the run course okay. and all that time is counted. So once you start, your time is, you know, all the transition wow. time counts. So you want to be really fast in transition and that kind of thing. And you're in yours, you're competing with other people that are also amputees. Yeah. Except though the, my category, um, I was competing against people that had one fully intact leg. So it put me at a disadvantage, oh. but I did that because I had spent all this time learning how to ride a bike and spent a lot of time learning how to run using running products prosthesis so i wanted to put that to use okay. and i just also have a penchant for trying to do things that are just a little bit too hard for myself you know just okay. a little bit harder than i think what i could do so i wanted to not only make it to the paralympics but i wanted to make it in a higher category uh than what i should be okay. just because it's an extra challenge uh okay. unfortunately that particular endeavor was way too hard for me because i didn't really even come close to qualifying okay um, it takes a long, long time to get into the sort of uh 
triathlon system because it's all based around points. And mm. I was coming from uh, rowing where it's just they have a race every year and whoever wins that race goes to the, you know, represents Team USA. Whereas in triathlon, it's like you have to you have to race in order to get points, but in order to get into the races, you have to have points. So it's kind okay. of this really weird uh, system. That's, that's not 22. why that's not why I didn't make it. I just wasn't fast enough. Um, and I didn't have enough time to train. Maybe if I had had a couple more years to train, I might've come closer, but anyway. Okay. All right, let's back up. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I didn't know how far you back. wanted me to go. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to go all the way back to, um, what inspired you one, what inspired you to join the Marines? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, so I was in college. I was a computer science student, actually, at Virginia okay. Tech. Okay. And all I wanted to do at that point was make video games. I wanted to, you know, I was really into video games when I was in high school. That's all I really did. Now, are you talking yeah. first-person shooters or chess Everything. or, or Everything. space? Yeah, or... yeah, yeah, like computer computer games. So, okay. What was your favorite game shooters. when you were a kid? What's that? What was your favorite game when you were a kid? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I definitely liked Diablo 2. Yeah. This is like a RPG. How about Halo? Uh, I didn't really play. I didn't. I played mostly computer games, so Halo was more like Xbox at that time. Oh, okay. So I didn't play a whole lot of Halo, but I did like first-person shooters. I played a lot of Half-Life mods. Okay. Um. So I don't know if you're familiar with the game Half-Life, but they really. they released uh they released uh, an SDK so that you could make your own game is basically with their code and their levels and stuff so okay. that kind of spawned this big movement where people would make these games and other people would play them so that's kind of what you know what one of the more famous ones is counter-strike okay. uh what about minecraft really, did you ever do that i didn't really play that um but i would say half-life modifications and some rpgs and that kind of thing okay um so i was really into them and i wanted to make my own games uh, so I went to Virginia Tech for computer science, but I didn't really have the work ethic to like okay. I had my high school mentality work ethic that I was trying to apply to college. and It just didn't work. And so that kind of resulted. in What me. was that? <laughs> my my high school work ethic was do your homework in the morning before class started. So get to school early and then, you know, not really do it. And it worked fine. I got a three point five GPA and, you know, I got into Virginia Tech, obviously, but college is a lot harder than high school is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that strategy didn't work and I didn't change. And uh, so of course, college, kind of you have a lot more time to do your homework because you don't have classes all day. You got a lot more time on your own hands. You have a lot more time to do your homework, but you also have a lot harder homework to do. Okay. And I just tried to get by with the bare minimum of work that I needed to do. And that wasn't and enough. Party the rest of the time, or what? <laughs> play video games most of the time. Yeah, okay. I didn't. I wasn't a party. I wasn't a party person. Um, I would just sit there, you know, and play video games instead of learning how to actually program video games. Okay. And so, and that was my problem. And so, ultimately, that resulted in me kind of not really doing well. I was getting D's, you know, in school, and maybe even a couple F's there. Um. And it just, that kind of snowballed into feeling lonely and isolated. I didn't have a whole lot of friends. So I just wasn't in a good place. Okay. And 
my friend who kind of had a similar situation the year before uh, we were talking on AOL instant messenger back when that was still the thing, the, the way a while ago. <laughs> yeah, this is 2005. So, okay. Um, and we were just talking and he just mentioned that he had joined the Marine Corps and he loved it because his dad was a Marine. And so okay. he had that a similar existential crisis, I think. And uh, Okay. That, but you didn't yeah. have any family members in the military? My dad got drafted in Vietnam in the Army, but he didn't go to Vietnam. It wasn't like a huge um, – it wasn't a family tradition or anything. Okay. By the way – there you go, Air Force, right yeah. on. <laughs> I, but actually, I'm not a – well, I was in the Air Force uh, National Guard. So oh, okay. So that's a bit of a different deal, as you know. But they didn't have Space Force back when you joined. You probably would have right. joined Space Force, I bet. I was a computer guy in the Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. Air Force in the so, reserves, yeah. Yeah, and so he, he told me that it was the best thing he'd ever done. So that kind of just made me curious. I didn't know a, a thing about the Marine Corps. So okay. I went down to the library, and I got a book out. Okay. And because that's one of the things I like to do was read, but I always ended up reading not things for class. I was just reading things right. that I wanted to read. So, and then uh, I mean, if you did those first-person shooter games, I mean, a lot of them are military-based, so you had some idea of what being a, a marine or or a, or some kind of soldier was, right? Yeah, you know, as much as you can from video games i wouldn't necessarily say they were as realistic as they are now but yeah a little okay. bit okay um but i was always playing i was mostly playing video games where i was shooting aliens and things like that so you oh, know okay. it wasn't a whole lot it wasn't like call of duty wasn't really a thing back then okay that's what um, so, i was actually yeah. thinking of yeah um and so i went down and i read this book called brotherhood of heroes about the battle of pele lu and it just really struck a chord it resonated with me um mm -hmm. and it kind of made me realize that i was missing things like courage and selflessness and brotherhood kind of the main thing that i felt like i was missing mm -hmm. and so i think i finished that book and without even consulting anybody i went down to the recruiter's office and joined the marine corps Dine me up very next day yeah. uh, what did your parents think of it when they found out they were shocked you know they yeah. it wasn't really something that um had been on my, my radar or so they didn't even know about it um and so they were shocked and they were kind of, they kind of, I don't know if they, I don't know that they felt that I was doing something wrong. I think they were proud at the same time, but they were definitely mm -hmm. shocked. And obviously they were scared because we were in two wars at the time. So they, and they, they kind of knew a little bit better about what a Marine does. Okay. Um, and so I joined the Marine Corps and then finished my last year at Virginia Tech as a reservist. And my plan was to go into OCS to be an officer in the Marine Corps. Okay. But shortly before uh, it would be, it would have came time for me to put in that application. My reserve unit started taking volunteers to go to Iraq. Okay, hold on for a sec. <clears throat> You're skipping one essential step, mm -hmm. which is what was it like your very first day of basic training? Um, you know, <laughs> it was a. Uh, it wasn't as much of a culture shock as. You would expect because once I joined, I started reading a lot of books about boot camp and things like that. So I almost okay. I sort of knew what to expect, um, but it certainly was scary because until you've actually been screamed at in your face by a big uh, drill instructor, you know, there's really nothing that can really prepare you for it. Right. Um, so but I kind of knew. So what happened when you got first screamed at? What, what was you? What was your reaction? 
I screamed, I, sir. <laughs> and that was, That's so you just locked right in. It's surprisingly, when I got screamed out, because I remember very vividly being on that bus and then in the, like in the middle of the night showing up at San Antonio Air Force Base. Yeah. I get off the bus and immediately there's a guy there screaming at us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody else, well, for one thing, I was older. I was like 30 and everybody else on the bus was 18. Yeah. But I had more life experience. And I was like, what the F is this? I mean, I was like, this is ridiculous. I started laughing. Yeah. Of course, the more I laughed at him, the more he screamed at me. And we got in a feedback loop immediately, right? So Mm -hmm. that was me. And then the next thing you know, we're up in this room and we have to take off all our clothes and we're all in our underwear, you know? And then he's, he's giving us the routine and basically trying to shock you into like, this is a completely new world and everything that you learned before that has no value, means nothing. This is the new thing, right? Yeah. So, but even then I was like, well, this is a total mind game. And I was still like entertained by it. And of course, whatever. So that was my reaction to it. Yeah. So, well, I was 20, so okay. I didn't have as much life experience and I didn't have that kind of, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I wanted to be a Marine. Okay. And so this is part of becoming a Marine. And so I knew that when you get screamed at, you just take it and you scream back at them, you know, I, sir, and you just do what they say in the, at the drop of a hat. So I wanted to be a Marine. I was fully bought in at that point. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the first time I got screamed at, I just did what they said because they just, they're not, they're screaming at you telling you what to do. Right. And so as long as you do what they say and you acknowledge what they say as loud as you possibly can and you do it as fast as you can, then you're going to be fine. Interesting. Yeah, because we weren't supposed to scream back. We were just supposed to sit there. We were supposed to have a military bearing and just look straight ahead and say, yes, sir. And that was it, but not scream it back. We didn't know. No, you don't scream back what they said to you. You just, yeah, you scream, I, sir, as loud as you possibly can. Or yes, sir, no, sir. Yeah, we didn't have to yell. Uh, We would just say, yes, sir. Oh, no, we had to scream as loud as we could. And if we didn't scream loud enough, then they would make us do it until we did. And a lot of the times, the requirement for how loud you're supposed to scream was beyond what you could possibly scream. So, you know, like you said, it's a a mind game. You're never perfect enough. You're never good enough. And that's kind of the idea to kind of show you that you can always be better. And... But yeah, there's a there's a whole lot going on in boot camp, and you could do a whole podcast about or a whole yeah. show about the mental aspects of boot camp and right how it breaks you down and builds you into the marine. But right, that's kind of what and of course, our marines that. marines are way different than the air force. Uh, one the one good thing about me being in the reserves was that when I got back to my unit, it wasn't just all air force people. We had marines, army, navy, any kind, any branch was now in my air force reserve unit. So I got to meet all these different people from the different branches and realize, okay, well, Air Force is way different than the Marines, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. As you know, I mean, you guys make jokes about us. Like, the the, big, the biggest joke about the Air Force is everybody calls us the chair force. Yep, yep. Like, all we really do is desk jobs, and we, we don't even – and our training on on how to how to actually fight like a soldier – happens like once every two years we go to the firing range and and spend a day learning how to how to take apart an m16 and shoot it and put it back together and then well, it's not really it's not really your role i mean yeah uh unless you're a pararescue jumper but i mean we called in plenty of air force a10s and we were extremely happy when they no, showed that's up different. 
and yeah. to get that A-10 to us to deliver close air support to kill the guy, bad guys that were shooting at us requires all this logistical support and people sitting in chairs getting that airplane over to us. So, yeah. you know, we were extremely thankful to have that A-10 on station or F-18s or whatever were there. Okay. Helicopters that take out wounded guys. F eighteen is Navy. What what does Air Force have? Do they have F fifteen? F sixteens and F fifteens. Okay. And, and now they got the F thirty fives. Yeah. And okay. Well, whatever. Whatever yeah. jets and planes and helicopters. Some of them were Air Force. Some of them were Navy. Some of them are yeah. you know. Some of them were even British. You know, yeah. all those planes are supported by, you know, all these people back in the offices doing what they got to do yeah so i don't have any ill feelings or anything for people that are in the air force or anybody that's you know it's all one one big team so yeah like you know what they talk i'm gonna i, I don't want to get stuck because you said you have about an hour and we've already blown 20 minutes in my rabbit hole <laughs> like so, i said you could, I, could, I could go on for hours and hours now so can i so, um, but I was like, what they taught us, my unit eventually got activated and we were going to go to um, Bosnia. So then we got some real combat training. Mm -hmm. But you know what the guys told me is like, if your base, because basically our mission was to put up an air base within like 24 hours time, set up a temporary yeah. air base and set up all the communications and all the um, computer stuff for it really quick right. that's what, what we what we did and then but we were getting trained now what do you do if you get overrun if you guys are under attack and the enemy's attacking what do you do yeah and they're like well we'll get our 16 m16s to shoot at them and, and the guys are like no that's not what you do since you're air force what you do is you run like hell and let the marines fight it okay because of course we don't know anything about combat. We would get mowed down. I mean, we don't even we wouldn't didn't know the first thing about how how to lay down any kind of fire lanes or. I mean, mm -hmm. we sort of knew how to shoot an M sixteen in a certain direction, but we knew nothing about, you know, what you actually need to know what to do. You know. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, so I went up. So the, I, I, we're gonna have to fast forward now. So, so what is it about the Marines that? is so great besides learning how to be a soldier i mean there's something much greater than that right um it was it's the brotherhood aspect of it that i think is what attracted me and i think what attracts most people um and what i think also makes the marine corps so effective is that it's a it's a group of people that are all of the same mind as you and you are all depending on each other for your lives and you're all willing to lay down your lives for each other okay. and you are going into the you know the world's most atrocious situations and that's war a lot of the time or really 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 difficult training and so when you do that when you when you experience really difficult situations um that builds a bond with you and the people that you went through that situation with. Okay. And so <clears throat> then you go into more difficult situations and it's kind of builds this really strong bond. So develop so, to put group. it in Star Trek terms, joining the Marines is like being assimilated into the Borg. <laughs> um, <laughs> not quite, not quite. Uh, we still are able to uh, think freely. 
I don't okay. know if can you do that in the Borg? I don't think you can, right? I guess it's debatable. I mean, usually, I mean, for most Star Trekkies, if being assimilated into the Borg is considered a bad thing. Yeah, I'd say it's probably so, more like being assimilated into the Klingon. Okay. Because you are a badass warrior and you can still think and think and freely. You and you believe in honor. And they encourage that. They want you to think freely. They want you to be, I mean, that's kind of one of the misconceptions about the military in general is that everybody's a Borg and you just do what you're told at all times, but it's not really the case. You follow orders, but if there's an order that you think is unlawful, correct, then you are encouraged to, you know, if in when your leadership is good and you're encouraged to speak up um, and you're not required to do anything that's illegal or wrong morally wrong and so <clears throat> i would say in that in that way it's not like the borg but at the same time the borg probably have a lot of brotherhood with each other and they are all kind of bought in to what the borg are doing mm -hmm. and so a lot of the most of the time marines are really bought into the marine corps mission and what the marine corps is so there's okay. some similarities there but it, it, it's not to the point that you know uh, you're a mindless automaton. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Okay. Then, uh, so you mentioned brotherhood, but could you describe what that is, what that feeling is, or what what's so great about this, what brotherhood is? Um, I mean, you could, you again, this is another subject you could talk about for a very long time and really dig deep. So if I was going to summarize it briefly, I would say it's being a part of a group um, in which every member of that group puts the group before themselves in every okay. situation to the point that, and what makes the Marine Corps so powerful is that it's a life and death type of thing where the Marine will put their life on the line for everybody, every other Marine, everybody else in their group. Um, okay, but that sounds like communism to me, and that supposedly communism is a bad thing. Um, I don't think, I, I mean, I think the difference between that and communism is that communism, you're kind of forced to do it, whereas the Marine wants to do it because... But you signed a contract, and after you signed the contract, you're pretty much forced to do it. Yeah, but it, it, you're <laughs> signing that contract willingly. But because I'm pretty sure, like, your typical says, Russian Communist Party person has uh, agrees that they're, I mean, if they're, if they're pro-party and they bought into it, they, they would say they freely are part of this and they believe in it, right? Well, I'm not saying that communism doesn't have some aspect of brotherhood in it, but uh, I think the difference is uh, the free will to choose uh, to enter into that contract. Okay. Uh, and then when... And so you want the, the, a Marine or a soldier or airman, they want to put their lives on the line for their fellow Marines because they love their Marines more than they love themselves. Okay, so, service before self. That used to be an aircraft or Air Force um, tagline. They probably still have it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good way to put it. So when I was in my platoon, I cared about every member of that platoon more than myself. And that's why I was able to take a metal detector and walk into an IED minefield because 
I was doing it because they were relying on me to do it to keep them safe. Okay, that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah. So how did you end up getting that job in the Marines? Um, it was kind of by chance. Uh, the reserve unit that I joined was a combat engineer unit, and that's just what they specialized in. And so... But you joined that unit, or, or you were just basically assigned to that after you, you were enlisted? I was assigned to that unit, to that reserve unit. Cause it was close to my college. It was the closest one um, to where I joined up. So I was in Blacksburg, Virginia, and this reserve unit was in Roanoke, Virginia. Okay. And so that's the one they sent me to cause I was joining the reserves. Okay. Um, that was before kind of, basic training or after? After. Yeah. So okay. I did, every Marine, you know, you go, to, you go to boot camp and then you go to your unit after that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so that was a combat engineer unit and they had combat engineers and one of the roles of combat engineers historically has been minefield defeat and minefield emplacement. And so that job kind of fell to when IEDs started becoming more and more common in Iraq and Afghanistan, that role kind of naturally fell to the combat engineer to uh, defeat those obstacles because we had the experience and the training and using metal detectors and, and things like that. And okay. then they also brought in explosive ordnance disposal um, later on to dispose of the IEDs and they did a little searching too, but the primary searchers were the combat engineers. Okay. So infantry units, they are trained in, you know, infantry tactics and doing that kind of fighting. And so what would happen would be a combat engineer would be embedded with one of them with a platoon and they would just kind of spend all their time with the infantry as a part of that platoon, basically, or a part of that squad. Okay. And they would just be kind of another infantry guy with a metal detector that also knew how to know that, you know, we weren't as good with infantry tactics and that thing because we didn't spend all of our time training it, but um we would just be another member of the platoon that was able to find ied okay was there a training aspect like did you train the rest of the platoon how to not get themselves blown up yeah i mean everybody gets that training just because uh it was so common it was the number one threat to people that were out there so everybody got that training but i you know i would from time to time give uh you know extra tips or I would, I would kind of get guys spun up on being able to use the metal detector and that kind of thing. Okay. But did you ever find yourself yelling at somebody? Did you ever find yourself yelling at somebody like, what, what the hell are you doing, dude? You know, or anything like that? No. Um, Cause that's not really uh, an effective way to communicate with people. I mean, in certain situations, uh, let's like, let's say I cleared uh, an IED lane and so when you when you when you clear an IED lane, the only place that you know for sure that doesn't have any IEDs in it are the places where I've stepped. So right. basically, what you have is think of like a two-inch wide tape, like a roll of duct tape, would be the lane that I've cleared. Wow! And so basically, just roll that roll of duct tape out to the other side, maybe ten feet or something like that, and you have to do everything you can to stay on that little line of duct tape basically so you're kind of like walking that tightrope wow. that's the only or it would, it would be a little bit wider but you know you kind of are able to picture that so if somebody was coming up to that ied lane and they were about to step off to the side yeah i might have to scream at them just because it's an immediate situation that has to be and if they step over there then they could be stepping on an ied and killing themselves and everybody else um 
but except in those really immediate situations, um, you know, screaming at somebody isn't really the best way to communicate what you want to communicate. So we would, uh, you know, you surprisingly, because at basic training, you were screamed at the entire time. Basic <laughs> training is they're not really trying to communicate with you as much as they are trying to um, break you down mentally and get you to, you know, the, the boot camp is kind of a completely different situation where they're, you know, the, the screaming is more of an effective tool. But then once you get out into the actual military, then the screaming becomes less and less, less and less effective and, and more and more pointless. Right. And I, I always uh, realize too, they scream at you. I mean, they're also so that you can deal with the shock effect so that when you're in combat and everything's blowing up around you and everything's gone to hell, you have something to grab onto, some kind yeah. of training that you can... Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, there's there's part, you know, the reason that they, they make you scream so loud is because in combat, you have to scream loud to be heard sometimes. Okay. And so there's that. And then there's also, you know, the ability to respond to orders immediately and acknowledge the orders. There's a lot of things that go into it um, as to why boot camp is so effective in creating Marines and the Marines are very good at it. Um, but that's kind of the only place where screaming is a regular way to communicate. Okay. And it's not really necessarily about communication. Like I said, it's, it's about more, um, it's about more than that. Okay. Okay. All right. So in the interest of time, we got to fast forward now. So, um, so being in the Marines, there's a sense of brotherhood. There's a sense of, um, love. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a greater sense of like your tribe, I guess it would be one way to put it or yeah. like you're, you're a part of your tribe, but your individual self is, is greater when it's part of this greater group of people that everybody, and everybody has kind of a, a group mission that we all believe in and we're all part of, and we're like a big family and that just makes you feel, makes you feel good. It's a good feeling. Yeah. gives you It gives yourself more meaning, or whatever. Yeah, when you're there's all there's a, there's like a that. Yeah. so mm -hmm. there. I mean, you you come off as a very by the book, intellectual, sharp guy. Oh, but I, I'm going to say <laughs> that beneath that is there's an emotional aspect to it, which is actually the most important part, right? It's how yeah, you love, feel. Love is what does it? Right. That's mm -hmm. what really matters as a human being, right? Mm -hmm. That's at least that's my philosophy. So, yeah. So you had that, and then it was fine for you. You worked out, okay. I'm gonna the guy who clears minds, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna do this the best I can. And this is this is what I do, and and you were the best at it until that fateful day. Can you describe that a little bit? I know you have, so let's just have you do it. I mean, I don't here. know if I would say I was the best at it because obviously result is the result, but I was, you know, okay, okay at it. <laughs> okay. Um, but you tried to be the best, right? You weren't just Yeah, I did everything slacker. I could to be the best. Yeah, and okay. I wasn't bad, but, you know, but I obviously I would. I'm just, I'm just kind of being saying that tongue in cheek, but. Uh, right. Um, yeah, so what we were doing was we were doing what's called a push into Taliban territory. So we were kind of 
moving all of our guys into Taliban land um, and just going. And if they shot at us or tried to stop us, we would shoot back, probably kill them, and then keep going and seize mud compounds and seize territory and set them up. Um, and so as a part of that, we had a lot of vehicles and we had infantry on the outside of the vehicles to protect them. And so I was with one of these infantry squads that was on the outside of the vehicle column, uh, just looking for ambushes and that kind of thing. Uh, okay. And you were kind of like the tip of the spear, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, we were kind of on the flank, so I don't know where we were. I don't remember where we were in the, um, whether or not we were the tip or we were kind of on the sides somewhere in there, probably close to the front. Um, but basically, we were looking out for ambushes, and in the afternoon, probably around 12.30 or something, we took a break, and then we continued on. And right, right, when, we, right when we stepped off, our point man stepped on an IED that had been right there in the ground, all sorts of people walking around, you know, and it just so happens he stepped on that IED. And luckily the IED malfunctioned when he stepped on it. So an IED is comprised of a blasting, it's a pressure plate okay. that you step on. Made out, usually it was usually made out of a shampoo bottle with copper wire on the inside. So he stepped on that shampoo bottle that closed the circuit and that sent an electric charge to the blasting cap. And the blasting cap was supposed to be inside this jug of homemade explosives. And that blasting Blasting cap was supposed to set off that big jug, um, but for whatever reason it didn't. And so just the blasting cap exploded. So it kind of sounded like a firecracker going off under his foot. Uh, <clears throat> but it wasn't, a, it's not a lot of explosives, so it didn't do any damage to anybody. Okay. Um, but the tactics for IEDs for the Taliban and for terrorists is to have one here and then one over here and then one over here because they know that if one person gets hit by an IED, then we all come and get them. So what they're trying to do is get that first guy and then get the rescuers and then kind of create this bad situation. And so we kind of knew that where there's one IED, there's probably, there's definitely going to be two, probably three, maybe even four or five. And so that area now became an area that was, had a high likelihood of containing an IED in it. So it became my job then to, find a safe path for everybody to go through um, to the other side of it. And so I got out my metal detector and started trying to find a path. And I ended up stepping on a, the, a secondary IED. Um, and I was unconscious for about 20 seconds and woke up. And, you know, it was about what you would expect uh, from when you see a movie uh, of somebody that gets hit by artillery or steps on a mine or something like that. You know, a lot of blood, a lot of screaming. Uh, a lot of commotion. And was it you screaming or someone else? Me, uh, me screaming in pain, but other people screaming that they were coming to get me and okay, you know, trying to calm me down as much as they could. But my but my mind and my body were the the conscious and the unconscious had separated from each other. And Did you so, have any feeling like you were like out of your body, sort of observing the whole thing or anything like that? I didn't feel like I was out of my body observing from above. Okay, um, but I certainly felt like my my mind had contained my consciousness into this little section over here while my unconscious kind of I was kind of watching a scene from from my own eyeballs um 
but without knowing, without having any control over what my body was doing for a while. So, so you were disassociated. It was one way to put it. All my senses worked. Yeah, disassociated. All my senses worked, but I wasn't telling my body to scream. You know, it was just doing it automatically. It was just reacting to the situation. So it's like my consciousness had been controlled okay. and put into this little box over here while my body kind of, while the rest of my body kind of did its thing, released endorphins or whatever I had to do. And then slowly over time, my consciousness kind of came back. How long did that and, take? Uh, 30 seconds, maybe not too long. Okay. Um, and then by that time, my fellow Marines, you know, they came to me and they gave me morphine and they put tourniquets on my body, on my legs and loaded me up onto a stretcher and they started taking me to a, a helicopter. And then okay. they actually took me to a tank, put me in the back of this tank and then made me unconscious. And then the tank took me to a helicopter. Okay. Do you remember the helicopter ride? No, because they made me unconscious when I got in the back of the tank. Okay. And so, so then went, what was next? You woke up the next day or something or? I woke up, let's see, probably two days later. Oh, okay. In a hospital in Germany. Germany? So they, they, okay. Yeah, so they took me to another a hospital in Afghanistan to perform life life-saving procedures, as mm-hmm. you would. Mm-hmm. And then when I was stabilized there, they sent me to another hospital in Afghanistan to stabilize me again. And they sent me to Germany where basically they just stabilized me long enough for me to be put on a heli- uh, not a helicopter, a plane back to Bethesda, Maryland, where the Naval Hospital was. So I think I was back in America three days, something like that, three, five, three to five days. And, and do you remember, hmm? um, the reason, I mean, you're okay talking about this, right? I mean, I'm just digging right in, okay? Yeah, I don't mind. Okay. So do you remember... Um, like when you woke up in the hospital and you finally were somewhat lucid and started to piece together everything that happened, do you remember what that was like? I mean, I wasn't really, I mean, I knew, I knew what had happened, you know, at the site of injury. I knew that my legs were, you know, blown off. I didn't know how high. Okay. Um, so I knew that, I knew that I had stepped on an IED because it's hard not to know that. So you were already going through your brain, like what your life was going to be like. Yeah, this outside, moment. yeah, yeah, yeah. Outside of injury, I assumed I was going to be in a wheelchair. I assumed my mom was going to have to like take care of me all day. I didn't know anything about, you know, being an Now, was this like a second after the explosion, you already were figuring this stuff out or? After my, after my consciousness time sort of came back, I think. Okay, but not when you were down here. Yeah, when my mind, I, I mean, I, ha- I have a memory of knowing what had happened, you know, uh, when you know, during that kind of disconnection, but I wasn't thinking about the future or anything. Like I knew that I had suffered. Okay. Uh, were you, did you have visions of your life up to that point? You know, when people say my whole life flashed before my eyes or anything, no, like, I didn't that. Have anything like that. I never, I never felt like I was going to die. Okay. Um, I don't know why, just because I knew that it was pretty common for people to survive those days where, because we had tourniquets and we had helicopters that come in pretty quickly and they get you to a hospital. I never felt like I was going to die. Okay. Um, but yeah, I assumed my life was going to be spent in a wheelchair and just kind of sitting around with my mom, you know, having to take care of me and stuff, Okay. which was naive. I mean, I, didn't, I had no idea what. Right. I had no experience with it. So, okay. So now you're in the hospital. 
you finally, you're back in America. So then what happened? Like, I mean, did you become angry or become depressed or how, what happened to you emotionally? I didn't really. Uh, I kind of, between uh, Germany and getting to Bethesda, I kind of, I, I guess my brain processed everything during that time period. And I kind of made the connection that what, what my mom was going to be very upset. She was going to be crushed. Hmm. And so I kind of made the connection that what was best for her was for me to be fine. And okay. so I think I sort of, and at this point I still wasn't lucid. I was, you know, high levels of morphine, and so on, yeah. okay. dilated, morphine, all that stuff. So I wasn't lucid. I was going in for surgery just about every day. So I was hallucinating and having uh, visions and things like that. So I wasn't really lucid, but somehow in that time period, I made the connection that what was best for my mom was for me to be okay. And so I just needed to be okay. And so, wow. I have you always it. been that attached to your mom? Like you haven't even mentioned your dad or even yourself. Yeah, it's I like mean, your mom. It was kind of the same. My mom, especially, but then. Um, I, I knew everybody was going to be crushed. Um, okay. I think my mom, I, I felt like my mom, cause she's, you know, she's your mom and moms are always a little bit more affected by, uh, the bad things that happen to their kids. Okay. And so, and my dad was crushed too. Don't get me wrong. Um, okay. but, um, you know, just that kind of mom and son connection thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just knew that she was going to be really upset and everybody was going to be upset. My fellow Marines, everybody was. And so I knew that what was best for her and what was best for everybody was for me to be fine. Did you and feel so it's sorry for yourself or anything like, why did this happen to me or anything like that? I had some thoughts like that, but then I also kind of made the connection that the more time I spent on that, the less time I could spend on creating the future that I wanted um, or finding out how I could create that future. So I didn't, I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Okay. So how do you attribute so i mean basically you're just being very practical and you're just yeah. immediately dealing with the situation and is that who you always have been or do you attribute that to your uh marine training um probably more marine corps i mean i don't it's hard to say i did i would never face such a difficult situation before joining marine corps so it's hard to say how i would have reacted like if i was hit by a car and lost both my legs uh -huh. But I think I would certainly say that the Marine Corps training certainly played a massive role in it. Uh, okay. But I probably also had the natural penchant for this kind of thing too. You know, nature okay. plus nurture. Okay. All right. So again, I wish we wouldn't have to rush, but I guess we have maybe 20 <laughs> minutes left. Um, Is that true? About 10. 10. Oh, wow. Okay. Now we're yeah. rushing. So, I mean, like I said, we, I, it would take me five hours to really dig into this, right? Maybe yeah, longer. I mean, I've been so, on Jocko podcast three times and we still haven't really covered everything. So uh, well, maybe then do you want to just plan on doing another video with me then? <laughs> yeah, and we just, could probably figure out how to schedule something. Okay, then let's then let's, let's figure out how to wrap up chapter one then. So, I mean, that's probably a good spot to wrap it up because it's kind of, you know, I've reached the hospital. Okay. I've been stabilized at this point. Okay. And then so, you know, I spent a week in the ICU. Okay. And then once they once they stabilized me enough that they, you know, I wasn't going to die anymore. 
mm-hmm. that I wasn't at risk of death uh, from infections and things like that. They amputated my legs above the knee. So they uh, originally at site of injury, they, my legs had been severed below the knee, but due to infections or um, a lot of the times with, with, when they do the surgeries and they decide what level of amputee you're going to be, they come at it from a, a stand a standpoint of what's going to be best for wearing prostheses. Right. And so if I had, you know, even if I had bones below my knee, it's not, and you can't attach a prosthetic to a bone that's sticking out. So they had to amputate to the point where there was enough viable tissue to wear uh, prosthetics. And so between infections and that consideration, they amputated above the knee. Above. Yeah. So had they done it below, then if you had, if you had your knees, then that would, have a lot more function right yeah i mean more the more joints you have the more function you do have so it, uh, you know a, it's always preferable to be below the knee and then you know below the ankle you know if you can so it, it's you know it's it's always more preferable to be have longer stumps longer legs depending right you know if i if i had my knees but my knees were just completely destroyed and you know i couldn't walk without pain and i could barely walk then yeah a lot of the times it is it does make more sense to amputate above the knee because of that okay so it's about what's viable and what's going to be the most effective way to put you back together such that you're going to have a the best life so okay that's the the consideration that they go through i don't know what it was it's probably infection plus you know the the meat and tissue below the knee that i had probably just wasn't that great right so they amputated above the knee Okay. Well, well so this then, is a huge uh, other know, subject we probably should wait till next time about. Yeah. Okay. So, so I spent the week in the ICU hallucinating and that kind of thing and um, going for surgeries. They stabilized me and then they sent me up to the, the post-surgery ward on the fifth floor of the hospital. Okay. Kind of where I started to, be, started to become, you know, more clear-headed, lucid, that kind of thing. So do you remember any of your, quote, hallucinations? Yeah, um, so there was one, it always happened during surgery or after surgery. I would go into the surgery and I, was, I would always wake up feeling freezing cold and shivering. Um, and then one hallucination was I was in a bunker and my mom was with me and I just remember my legs had been splattered all over the bunker and there was blood all over the place. Um, and then there was another one where I was going out on patrol and somebody shot me in the neck and everybody else was just continued on the patrol when I was laying there, uh, shot in the neck. And those are the only two that I really remember. And then every time I closed my eyes, you know, I couldn't really, you know, when you close your eyes, it's just kind of like this kind of red, black, nothing. Spots, yeah. When I did that, I would just have visions. It would feel like I was flying over like desert. And it would just be like, you know, if I was flying over desert and looking down, I just had like this movie playing of that. Or I remember there being like the aliens from the alien movie, mm-hmm. like them like running around and doing stuff. So, um, and I remember I would see ants in my bed, uh, just various things like that. Wow. Yeah, hallucinating. Wow. Yeah, okay. And that's probably a combination of the drugs, plus also just also your mind just trying to deal yeah. with every the shock of it and everything. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah we got tons to talk about.
Um, okay, let's wrap it up, I guess, um, right. for now. And then we'll just plan on doing part two whenever we can in a week or so, is that, if that's possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, my wife's sister and brother-in-law are in town for the next couple weeks, so we'll probably do it after that. Okay, well, we'll just email each other and yeah. schedule the next thing. Um, so uh, we'll put some links in the description. Obviously, your website mm -hmm. is the important thing. And then you said you had a YouTube channel also? I don't have a YouTube channel, um, but if you Google Rob Jones Marine and YouTube, you'll get all sorts of videos of me. Okay. I have so really what good SEO. You know, you Google, you just Google Rob Jones and I'm like the first page, the whole first okay. page. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want me to put down there, like um, your Facebook page, probably? I don't, I'm not too active on Facebook. Instagram and LinkedIn are kind of where I do most of my social media. Okay. Both at Rob Jones Journey. Okay. And then you do have an email account, but I guess probably the best way to contact you is just through the contact part of your website, right? Yeah, that or Instagram, LinkedIn, you know, I, I check those messages just like you, you know, when people contact you on YouTube or whatever. Okay. I pay attention to it. I don't right. have so many followers that I can't, you know, respond to a message. Okay. And then let's, we should do a plug. So a part of what your career now is motivational speaking, right? Yeah, so I, you know, I kind of built this story, and then that, what I'm trying to do now is use that story to help people. Okay, and so basically, corporations like the the place I work, King County, mm -hmm. hire invite you to come and and you give a presentation, and you obviously get paid because it's your career, and so yeah, it's a way to make a living, right? Um, and so yeah, and so usually they bring me in for. Things like, you know, the library day or, you know, a lot of the times it's just they want to help their employees with, you know, their well-being. And so right. part of your well-being is to have a positive attitude and have a good mindset. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I specialize in, where I come in and tell my story and I give people strategies on um, how they can have a mindset that allows them to do, you know, I, I, I share with them the mindset that allowed me to do all the things that we're going to talk about, you know, recover quickly from my injury and then have the vision to do all these other things as well. Right. And so I yeah. can try and share that with people and give them strategies. So that when they're facing their challenges, they can kind of use those strategies to overcome them and that kind of thing. So. Right. And that's going to be a subject of a later video. Cause obviously we just, we've just basically done the preamble to all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I guess that's probably it then for now. So, cool. Thanks, Rob. I mean, it's great getting to know you a little bit, and um, I'm looking forward to the next video. And, yeah, it's uh, gonna be great. Appreciate we'll you having schedule. me on. Um, it's been a great conversation. All right, all right. Take care, sir. You too. Until Thanks next... a lot. Man. So, did you end up being an officer? I forgot about that. No. Uh, so because. Um... Uh, you know, I got, we got that volunteer platoon going to Iraq and then shortly after we got back from Iraq, they were sending another volunteer platoon to Afghanistan. So I just wanted to keep fighting the bad guys. And so we never really got around to applying to OCS. Okay. So I actually shouldn't call you sir then. <laughs> well, you can call me sir. You can call me I, I want to like, <laughs> yes, sir. But anyway. Okay, very good to get to know you, and we'll we'll continue this conversation next time. All right, sounds good. All right, and you are a Trekkie, right? 
Um, I mean, it's it's an enjoyable show. I'm not like uh, probably not as big a fan as you are, but uh, you know what this means, yeah, right? I know, I know the long, the long and prosper, so I know. All that. right. <laughs> I we watched uh, I think all the Star Trek movies when I was in Iraq. So. Oh, cool. Okay. And this was before all the new ones came out. Okay. I highly recommend the the new show, um, Strange New Worlds. All right. Yeah. I'll take a look Just at came it. out Paramount Plus. I think you'll really like it. All right. Cool. All right. Take care, sir. Until next time. Thanks, Matt. everywhere. We gotta change.